You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. Okay, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get started. Heavenly Father, we just want to praise you and thank you for who you are. Praise you and thank you again for the chance that we have to gather with other believers to study your word together and to learn more about you. God, I pray that we would hear it this morning as you've instructed us last week in 1 Thessalonians. God, that we would be able to focus and concentrate right now on what you're wanting to teach us, that we would be able to comprehend your word this morning, that we would hear it, but that also we would accept it, that we would um, welcome it into our life, uh, that we would affirm it because it comes from you and not from man. God, that we would see your word as divinely inspired. It's not optional. Um, that it's a, it's a mandate for our life. And so, God, I pray that we would hear it like that this morning. We would respond to it accordingly. And, God, that you would work in our life through it. Um, Father, we, we thank you that you have um, given us the word that we can hear in a language that we can understand this morning. God, I pray that we would be faithful uh, with what you've entrusted to us today. And, God, we do ask that you would work through it in our life as well, that we would be uh, the type of individual people, the type of church that you desire us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, coming to the end of chapter 2 fairly quickly. We've been talking about what it means to be entrusted with the gospel. We said that uh, Paul relates to the Thessalonians that he has been entrusted with the gospel by God, that God approved him to be entrusted with it by uh, saving him. And by saving him, thus entrusting him to pass the gospel along to others. So we've talked about our responsibility to endure in the gospel despite suffering and persecution. Because Paul initially starts this chapter off by um, dealing with the topic of suffering and persecution. He says, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he says we have a responsibility to endure in the gospel because we've been entrusted with it. We have a responsibility to grow in the gospel. We need to know it so that we can present it without error. Paul talks about how he was able to do that. And in protecting, in, in growing in the gospel, we have to protect the gospel. That we do not receive a gospel that is false. That we do not um, receive teaching that, that is not biblical. That we are to receive it without error as well. We're to reflect the gospel in the way we live our life. We're to declare the gospel to others. Ultimately, we are to invest the gospel. We're to invest the gospel into others as we make disciples. All the while, we continue to believe in the gospel ourselves. That we continue to put ourselves under biblical teaching. And we talked last week about how it is so important that not only are you faithful to make disciples, you are also faithful to be under the teaching of the word. That you continue your own growth and you continue to accept God's word into your life. You continue to believe it just like you believed from the beginning. That you practically are here as much as possible. That when you're not here, you're faithful to catch up so that you're getting the word into your life. In addition to personally studying it on your own. So we looked at that, that concept last week in verse 13 of chapter 2. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So we talked about our responsibility last week to hear the word, to be under the teaching, to put ourselves in a position to to ingest it basically into our minds and into our hearts, and... Not only in hearing it, we accept it. And we talked about how that was a hospitality word, that we, we do everything we can to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it. And we talked about some practical ways to do that last week, how we can uh, get the rest that we need on a Saturday night, that we can spend time in prayer before we get here on a Sunday morning, preparing our mindset to hear the word and to accept the word. And then we said, ultimately, when we do those things, that God will work in us. That he will energize his word in us and make us into the type of people that he wants us to be. So then we come to verse 14. 
For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. In that last verse, the last few verses we won't get into today. For what is our hope or joy of crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Just in briefly reading over that, Paul addresses the aspect of them suffering. Just in a, in a quick, brief reading of it, what would you say the reason is for their suffering? Why are they suffering at the hands of their countrymen? Based in context of what else Paul has said there. Why are they suffering? Okay. Yep. But some of that imitation is the fact that they are imitating the churches by suffering. So what is causing the suffering? Because I think this is really important. If we miss this, then we will have an an incorrect understanding of what it means to suffer and why we suffer. Why are they suffering? They're shown a spotlight on the sin around them since they have found the true light. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, at its essence, at its root, their suffering is coming from the fact that they are hearing the word, responding to the word, and God is working. And that's why they're suffering. They're not doing anything abnormal or crazy. They haven't come up with some type of program in their church that, that is causing suffering. They haven't stepped out differently than any other church and, and as a result done something that has brought confrontation or hatred towards them. They are simply hearing the word and doing what the word says, and it's causing them to suffer. People are hating what is happening because they are responding to the word. So, I mean, at its basic core, they are simply being doers of the word. And as doers of the word, it is bringing suffering upon them. And it's not unique to this church. It's consistent with other churches. And that's what Paul wants to encourage them with. He says, don't be discouraged. Don't let it, um, don't let it uh, stop your passion for the word. Don't let it make you think that you're doing something wrong. Other churches are doing this too. Other churches are hearing the word, responding to the word, and suffering for it. Okay? So, in your notes, some initial application. Responding obediently to the word leads to opposition. Responding obediently to the word leads to opposition. Mark, can you grab me some notes? Responding obediently to the word leads to opposition. That's why we, we can't break verse 14 up from verse 13, even though it seems to be a change in topics, because they go closely together. Paul says, I thank God that you received the word, you heard it, you accepted it, God's working in you through it. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So accepting the word and advancing the word equals God working through suffering. When we accept the word into our life and when we're faithful to advance it. Because think about it, that's what Paul is ultimately doing. He got saved on the Damascus Road. And rather than keep his salvation to himself, 
He's taking Jesus literally where he's trying to make disciples of all nations across the planet. And so he's going from place to place, calling people to salvation, calling people to turn from idols, to turn to the one true living God, to renounce their sin, to live faithful, honor, honoring type lives that bring God glory. And so he's advancing the word. So when we accept it, when we hear it, read it, accept it into our life, and then try to advance it by passing it on, by making disciples, it brings suffering. But God works through our suffering. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul, in talking with Timothy here, he says, you will be persecuted. If you sign up to live a godly life, you should expect persecution. If you sign up and say, I want to hear the word and I want to do what the word says. Scripture says we should prepare and be ready and looking for suffering in our own life. In fact, Scripture seems to say that responding to the word and enduring and suffering is a sign of our salvation. It's a sign of our salvation. It's an outward evidence that God is working inwardly. In Luke chapter 8, verse 13, Jesus is telling the, uh, the parable of the sower and the seed. Okay, so the, the sower gathers, gathers the gospel, gathers the word of God, and he begins to dispense it. Some of it falls on good ground, some of it falls on bad ground. And we see what happens when the word is shared and accepted by people who have a, the wrong type of response. Verse 13, it says that ones fell on the rock and those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And in the time of testing, they fall away. So Jesus shared with his disciples, he said, you will share the gospel with people who will initially respond. They will, they will agree with what you said. That yes, they need Christ. That yes, they want to turn from their sin. They want to do things the way the scripture says. But when suffering and testing come, Jesus says these people fall away. They don't lose their salvation. It just shows that they never were saved. That there was an initial response, an initial springing up from the seed. It sprouted, but it couldn't get rooted in. It, it quickly died away. There, there, was no, there was no way to get to the water. And as testing came, as the sun came out and, and it began to apply the pressure, this person quits following Jesus. And so Paul is, is affirming the Thessalonians' salvation again. He's saying, I thank God that you're saved. And another way that I know you're saved is that you're enduring suffering. You are being persecuted for doing the word and you're responding pr- appropriately to it. You're, you're not falling away. You're not... Stopping what we called you to as Christians. You're you're persevering. You're enduring in the faith. Some ways that that we see in Scripture that God uses suffering. Number one, He uses it for repentance. He uses it for repentance. God uses suffering in our life to help turn us from treasuring earthly things more than God. When we experience loss in this life, it should draw our attention and reflection back to the fact that Christ is all we need. That if we were to lose a spouse, God forbid, one day, or if we were to, to lose a child, if we were to lose a job that ultimately resulted in us losing a house, losing a car, losing other possessions, that in that loss, in that loss, it directs our attention to back to just how valuable Christ is. That Christ cannot be taken from us. That everything that this world offers can be taken from us, but Christ cannot be taken from us. And so God uses suffering in our life to remind us that that Christ is more precious than any earthly treasure. And then number two, he uses it to teach us reliance. 
reliance. We trust in God, not this world, for our hope and security. That we're able to to deal with loss in a way knowing that, that God is our provision. That God is our caretaker. That God is our provider. That He is our source of security. He is our source of hope. So responding obediently to the word leads to opposition. That's, the, that's an initial thing we can see here. It says that they responded to the word. says that they endured persecution and suffering from their fellow countrymen. But Paul gives us a encouraging look into how this will be handled later on. He says that the people who are causing you the suffering, they also put suffering on others like Jesus and prophets and even us, Paul says. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. So secondly, there in your notes, responding disobediently to the word leads to wrath. Responding disobediently to the word leads to wrath. Rejecting the word and then hindering the word equals God punishing through wrath. Here's what, the, here's what these people had done. Jewish people and Gentile people, because Paul's talking to a predominantly Gentile church here at Thessalonica. So he says, just like the Jewish church back in Jerusalem, just like they suffered at the hands of Jews, you have suffered at the hands of your fellow countrymen, which probably includes Jews and Gentiles. Probably Jewish people who have grown up in Thessalonica, because at this time, a lot of the Jewish people are dispersed. They're not living in one area together. They're Jewish people all over the Roman Empire. So Paul's probably saying, Jewish people and non-Jewish people have brought persecution on you. So, rejecting the word. These people have heard the word from Paul, just like the Christians have. Paul and, and, and the apostles before Paul was saved, like Peter, those guys were preaching to the Jerusalem church, Acts 2. Day of Pentecost, where thousands get saved all at one time. Some people responded to the word. They began to do the word, and they were persecuted by the people who said no to the word. These are people who have heard the same message, probably, from Paul and have nixed it, have said, not interested. And we're, we're not happy that others have accepted it. So not only are we rejecting it for ourselves, these Jewish and Gentile people are wanting to stop the spread of it. Which I think is consistent with, with what we see today, even in our own country. That there are people who not only are, are against us as Christians for being Christians, but would also like to prohibit us from being able to spread the gospel as well. You may not be aware of it, that in uh, the state of New York this past week, it was passed that churches can no longer meet in schools, that it's a violation of the Constitution, that churches are no longer allowed to meet in a public school. So it nixes a lot of uh, plans that, that church plants have. That's, that's where a lot of church plants go, is it's straight to the public schools. We've got churches that are meeting in all the public schools around here, which is why we don't meet in a public school right now, because they're all occupied by churches. It's estimated that I think it was 66 or 68 churches in New York no longer have a place to meet. That this, this is going into effect. They do not have a place to meet now. Our country, as, as little suffering and persecution as we see, it too is in opposition, not only to the word that it doesn't want to accept, but it's also in opposition to the word being spread to others. It's not good enough just for me to say no. I don't want anybody saying yes to it, is what these Jewish and Gentile people are saying. Yeah, I'm not interested, Paul, but I'm also not interested in you telling anybody else. I'm not interested in you gathering a following of this message that you're preaching. So responding disobediently to the word leads to wrath. Okay, so those are some initial applications. Responding obediently, it brings suffering. Responding disobediently brings wrath. Both sound bad. I mean, nobody wants to suffer or experience wrath. So it's kind of like, are we talking about lesser of two evils here? But what we know from Scripture is that suffering is used for our good as Christians. So we can embrace suffering joyfully, knowing that God will use it in our life. And ultimately, our suffering is limited to here on earth, whereas wrath that we're talking about may come here on earth, but will most certainly come in the afterlife for eternity. At times, God does pour out wrath on this earth on unbelieving people. And so from that aspect, that's temporary as well. 
but that wrath will also carry over into the uh, eternal life. So when we think about it in context, we're saying that suffering and wrath, yeah, bad, but suffering is good for a Christian because God uses it for our good, and it's temporary. It's temporary, and in light of eternal glory, it's absolutely nothing. It's, it's, a, it's a speck on the, on the timeline of eternity for what we're going to be experiencing. And so Paul is encouraging the church here. He says, you continue to respond to the word, continue to endure this suffering because those people will get what they deserve. Those people will be under God's wrath because you could easily look at it and say, man, like I'm suffering and the people who are not responding to the word aren't suffering. Everything's great for these Jews and Gentiles. Life is going great for them. They're the ones that, that are applying the persecution. Maybe we should stop obeying the word. Maybe we should go back to what life was like before. And Paul's saying, that's not an option. It's not an option because those guys will get wrath one day. All right, so let's break this down a little bit more and see what Paul's wanting us to take away from it. Number one in your notes, suffering is consistent with obedience. All right, suffering is consistent with obedience. And underneath that, the pattern is unavoidable. The pattern is unavoidable. Verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So there was persecution that was happening in Judea. And there was a persecution that was happening because these people had responded to the word. So the similarities, we've got a church in Thessalonica, a church in Judea, which is most likely um, the Jerusalem church would have been grouped into that. Okay, so there was a bunch of churches in Judea area. The Jerusalem church, which is the Acts 2 church that we're so familiar with, that responded on the day of Pentecost. Um, they all said, hey, we're cut to the heart. What do we do? Peter says, accept Christ, be saved. And then they began to meet in houses. They, they had all things in common. That church. Okay, there's a church there, church in Thessalonica. Both of them are doing what the word says. Both of them are enduring persecution. And so Paul says, you've imitated the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now let's think about the type of suffering that that Jerusalem church has endured. And this is where it gets really interesting to me as I was reading this. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is when the persecution really starts to come. Acts chapter 7 is the account of Stephen. The first account in scripture we have of someone dying for their faith. Stephen is persecuted for, basically preaches this sermon, says you guys need to be saved. Peter got thousands of responses at Pentecost. Stephen gets stoned. He doesn't quite get the same reception and response that Peter got. He preaches this sermon and says you guys are guilty of killing Christ. You've killed prophets in the Old Testament. You need to get saved. You need to get right with God. And they stone him for it. They say, no, no, we don't want to get saved and we're not going to let you tell other people either. So in the same way, they opposed not only the word for themselves, they opposed it being spread to others. And so they're killed for it. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Here's the irony of what's going on in First Thessalonians. Is that Paul says, you guys are imitating the church in Jerusalem. And I know you're imitating them because I was there. And I was the one who was applying the persecution. Paul says, thinking back on it, I was stunned because I was the persecutor. 
I was the one that wanted to stop the word from spreading. I was the one that initiated the stoning of Stephen. And I saw these people remain faithful. They wouldn't turn their back on this gospel that was being spread. Paul says, you guys are imitating the church. And I can say that because I had first experience. And unfortunately, it was because I was on the other side. I was the one applying the persecution. So Paul provides us a unique perspective here. He says, you're imitating the churches. And I know you're imitating them because I've seen what it looks like. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we have another incident where now that Paul's saved, he's obviously not ravaging the church anymore. But the persecution continues after it, after it stops for a little bit. It says in verse 1, at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, it pleased the Jews that the gospel that James was spreading was stopped. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now God rescues Peter here. God didn't rescue James. We don't, we don't know why. God had purposes for both. One, Peter becomes an example of enduring persecution and not giving up. James, also an example of enduring persecution, even to the point of being killed, being killed for his faith. But we have two intense persecutions that happen in Jerusalem. Paul says, you guys are imitating the church in Jerusalem. Thessalonica, you're, you're doing exactly what they did. Which, which indicates to us a couple of things. One is that Christians have been suffering from the very beginning. The church suffered from day one. From day one, Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes in and lives inside of the, the brand new Christians. These people that are the, the first part of the new covenant. Gentiles coming in to be saved as well. They suffered from the very beginning. The pattern is unavoidable. Suffering has always been true of God's people. And these opponents were angered because they were being given salvation minus law keeping. You understand that? That's what angered the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles kind of piggyback off the Jews. It seems to be a picture of, hey, the Jews are angry. Let's just be angry too. You know, because uh, the Gentiles were fine worshiping their own gods. It's the Jewish people that are initially so angry at this gospel. And the reason they're so angry is because Peter and Paul and the apostles are presenting a salvation that does not require Torah keeping. You don't have to keep the Old Testament law for this new salvation that's being offered. Now, we understand that, that salvation never came from obeying the law. But that's where the perversion had happened. The Pharisees were teaching that you can get to heaven by being obedient to the law. Yeah, we have these sacrifices, but ultimately the goal is, is that you can be good enough to get to heaven. Jesus shows up and says, unless your righteousness is better than the Pharisees, you're not going anywhere close to heaven. And that was offensive to them, and it's offensive today when we tell people that their good works aren't good enough. Nobody wants to hear that they're a sinner. Nobody wants to hear that they can't fix it on their own. Nobody wants to be faced with what God's word really says about them and their condition. And it was offensive to the Jewish people. It became offensive to the Gentile people. And they were opposing this in Jerusalem and in Judea because salvation is being offered minus law keeping. We're studying the Reformation right now at school. And uh, we were talking this week about uh, villages in France that were burned. People were burned because they were confessing that salvation was absent from good works. That we cannot merit ourselves to heaven. They were burned for it. The church said, absolutely not. Good works get us to heaven. And they killed these people during the Reformation time. And people like John Wycliffe stood up and said, no. No. And we're going to give the word to the people. We're going to translate it in English so that everybody can see your corruption and you can be exposed as a false gospel. People hate being told that their good works can't get them to heaven. 
So we've seen the persecution in Judea, and it's similar to the persecution happening here in Thessalonica. Suffering was brought on by their own countrymen, and these opponents are angered as well. And what are they angry about? Well, we're told in Acts chapter 17. Remember the passage that we looked at previously that tells us how this church was initially started. In Acts 17, 5 through 8, the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, this is where I think the Gentiles start coming into it. The Jews are, are angry because Peter and Paul and these guys are sharing a gospel absent from the law. And so they just grab some, some wicked men of the rabble and say, hey, we're angry. You guys want to be angry with us? And, and they begin to form a mob and just say, hey, we're just going to be angry about what this guy's doing. I'm not sure the Gentiles fully understood at this point what the gospel even was that were a part of this uh, mob. They could not find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason also received them. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The opponents here in Thessalonica are angry because essentially they say, Paul is telling these people to live differently than we live. And it was drastic enough to where it made them angry. The, the life that Paul was saying, you live the way the word says, it made the people that weren't doing that angry. It confronted their own self-righteousness. And they responded in anger, and, and a mob formed, and they rushed Paul out of town so that he could avoid being killed. We know in 1 Thessalonians 1.6... That the Thessalonians received their affliction with joy. We've already looked at that when we were in chapter 1. Here's the crazy thing. We said that the Thessalonians imitated Paul, right? Like in being discipled, Paul said, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example. Like a mother and a father, I'm going to pour myself into you. I want you to respond and do what I do. And, and they did that. They, they mimicked the example that Paul set for them. Here, they are mimicking an example. They are imitating a church that they've never been to. They've never been to this church. And so they do not have a blueprint to model or to imitate. The common factor is the Holy Spirit is doing the exact same thing in both these churches. It's not that the Thessalonians got together and said, hey, let's do what the Jerusalem church is doing. They're enduring the same persecution. Let's do exactly what they're doing. This is something that's just happening, but there's consistency in it because the Holy Spirit is consistent. The church in Thessalonica has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to endure persecution. The, the Jerusalem church has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading them to endure persecution. These guys don't get together and say, hey, let's do this the same way. But they are doing it the same way because of the common factor of the Holy Spirit. So the pattern is unavoidable. Christians have been suffering from the beginning. We looked earlier today when we started our time that Jesus promised suffering as well. Paul promised it to Timothy. He says, if you want to live a godly life, you will suffer. You will be persecuted for your faith. So the pattern is unavoidable. Next, the company is extensive. The company is extensive. Because not only have the early churches been enduring this type of suffering... But we've got another list of people who also endured suffering for being faithful to the word. It says, as did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So we've got Lord Jesus being killed. We've got the prophets being killed. And we've got missionaries being driven out. Paul says, the Jews that are persecuting in Jerusalem, they killed Jesus, they've killed prophets, they drove us out. Now there's a, um, there's a question as to which Jewish people Paul's actually addressing here. Is he addressing national Israel? Is he saying that Jewish people as a whole have done this? Or is he attributing this offense to these specific Jewish people that are alive at this time? And how you understand that kind of helps you understand what it means when he says wrath has come. Um, and so what you determine about who the Jewish people are determines how you interpret wrath has come 
on that group of people. I personally think you can see it from both angles. I think both angles are correct and consistent, and so I'm not sure that it, that it matters in the end exactly which group of Jewish people he's talking about. Because the Jewish people, from the time they were chosen through Abraham, have rejected God's word and have rejected God's prophets. These Jewish people have rejected God's word and have rejected God's prophets. So I think both are correct. I think you can make arguments for both. Is it all Jewish people in the sense of representing that are guilty of this? Or is it these specific Jewish people? And I think both can be argued. Lord Jesus was killed. In Luke 20. We won't have time to look at all these, so I may just start giving you some of these verses to look at on your own. Because some of them are a little... A little lengthy. Luke 20, verses 9 through 19. This is a parable of the wicked tenants. It says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is that that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the tragic picture of Israel. The tragic picture is that God chose them to be his people. He sent prophets to them all through the Old Testament to give them instruction. And they were rejected by and large. They were beaten and killed a lot of times. And then God sends his own son to give instruction about his word. And he too is killed. And it says that God will come and bring judgment on these people and give the kingdom or give the gospel to others. And that's where we see the Gentiles massively being included in God's redemptive plan. This parable is all about Jesus being murdered by God's chosen people and the gospel going out because of it. I think Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 specifically to show the condemnation on the Jewish people. He says they killed Lord Jesus. In the Greek, in the Greek, uh, Lord and Jesus is separated by the verb. The way the Greek's written, they, they move words around differently than we do. So if you're reading it in the Greek, Lord and Jesus is separated by the verb. And so it really highlights They killed God, and they killed a fellow man, a fellow Jew. So it highlights both aspects. They killed God, and they killed a man. They killed Jesus, who is 100% God and 100% man. If it's not a big enough deal that they killed their own fellow man, they also killed God. So So Paul says, these Jews that have instigated this persecution, they're highly guilty of offending God. They killed Lord Jesus. They killed Lord Jesus. They killed prophets. They killed prophets. Now, if we're talking about Jewish people, the Jewish nation as a whole, we see in Hebrews 11, verse 32, how the Jewish people in the Old Testament were guilty of this. It says, And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets. This is the hall of faith that's this sometimes called. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in power, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking 
and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is how the Jewish people treated their prophets. They hated them. They hated God's word. They would not respond to God's word. They did not accept God's word. They opposed it and they tried to stop it by killing the prophets. By killing the prophets. So Jewish people as a whole, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, predominantly Old Testament, they reject God's word. So if we're looking at what Paul says here from a national sense, yes, they killed prophets. Some other passages you could jot down about this, First Corinthians or First Kings 19.10. 1 Kings 19.10, 2 Chronicles 24, 19-21. 1 Kings 19.10, 2 Chronicles 24, 19-21. But we're also able to see that Jesus viewed the current Jewish people as guilty of killing prophets. Because in Matthew 23, in verse 31, Thus you witness against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the Jewish people here. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Jesus is, is saying what Paul's about to reiterate. He says, fill up the measure of your sins. Keep on sinning is what Jesus says. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus says, how are you to escape God's wrath? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. you got to think Jesus is thinking about Paul here. And it's crazy to think that Paul's going to do this and be the recipient of it as well. So Jesus is speaking and he says, some of you are going to do what Paul tells you to do. And you're going to kill the prophets. You're going to kill people like James. You're going to try to kill people like Peter. You're going to kill Stephen, who's a prophet. You're going to flog some of them in synagogues. You're going to beat them from town to town. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they've been on the run spreading the gospel, right? Fleeing from Philippi to to Thessalonica to Berea. It's the fulfillment of what Jesus said. He tells the Jewish people, you hate me, you hate my gospel, and you're going to continue to hate it even when I'm gone. You're going to kill the prophets. So national Israel, yeah, they kill prophets in the Old Testament. These people that were currently living, yep, they kill prophets too. They killed the apostles. They killed Jesus' disciples. And then the missionaries were driven out. You can also jot down Acts 7, 51 through 53 with the prophets being killed. Missionaries were driven out. The Jews were failing to fulfill their purpose in Acts chapter 13. When, when Paul said that we were driven out from Judea, he may have had this account in mind. In Acts 13... Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So they're preaching, and and people are saying, "Keep, keep preaching to us. We want to hear more about this. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Jewish people had missed. Way back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, if you want to jot that down. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it's the Abrahamic covenant. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm choosing you to be the father of my people. Ultimately, you guys are supposed to be a blessing to the entire world. We understand that to be that the Messiah is going to come through Abraham's line and the whole world can be saved through the Messiah. But the the Jews were missing the point. They had become exclusive. 
You have to become a Jew to get to heaven is what they had determined. You have to become a Jew to get to heaven. And so Paul and Barnabas are now proclaiming that the Gentiles will be included in this salvation. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, the word was, the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. <clears throat> Going back to 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. They killed Lord Jesus. They killed the prophets. They drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Isn't it tragic that the gospel has come to every man and Paul and Barnabas are preaching this and the Jews are rejecting it. And so Paul and Barnabas, they say, look, we're going to start going to the Gentiles now. And it says that the Gentile group were like, yeah, yeah, like give it to us. And the Jewish people are saying, no, no. The tragedy is, is that they were included in this the whole time. From the very beginning, God called the Jewish people to be the spreaders of the gospel. And they've rejected it. Not only rejected to spread it, but they've rejected it for themselves. And so you've got two different responses here. The Jewish people saying, no, kill them. And the Gentiles saying, yeah, bring it to us. We want it. We want to respond to the word. The Thessalonians are an example of that. They, Paul comes into their town and they respond. They want the word. The warning here given to us in Scripture is that God will hold accountable those who have rejected his word and persecuted his church. God will hold accountable those who have rejected his word and persecuted his church. Paul says they're filling up the measure of their sins. That wrath has come at last. How does one fill up the measure of their sins? Well, in Matthew 23, 22, we already saw that Jesus said... Keep on sinning. Keep on filling up the measure of your fathers so that when God sends his wrath, it's deserved. It's interesting if you want to jot this down, Genesis 15, 16. Genesis 15, 16. God's talking to Abraham. And he, he tells Abraham, he says, um, there's coming a time when your descendants are going to have to go to Egypt for 400 years. They're going to be in bondage for 400 years. And, and we know that, that they do. They get, that Joseph leads his family down there. Pharaoh dies. Doesn't, doesn't remember Joseph, the new Pharaoh. And so he puts all of Israel into bondage for 400 years. Genesis 15, 13 tells us why they stay in Egypt for 400 years. Does anybody know? Why do they stay in Egypt for 400 years? There's reasons that, it, that they stay there for, the, for them. They grow big. They grow strong. They're protected by Egypt. But Genesis 15, 13, where do they go after Egypt? I mean, where are they going? Like, where are they going to live? The promised land, right? Genesis 15, 13, God says, you're going to have to stay there for 400 years because the Amorites haven't become sinful enough. He says, I'm going to give them 400 more years to be really, really sinful, and then you're going to come in and kill them all. I'm going to let them fill up their sin. Basically, God, in his patience and in his endurance, gives us opportunity to repent. But in giving us opportunity to repent, he also makes us more culpable for our judgment. He allows sinful people to remain in their sin so that he is completely justified in his wrath. He says the Jewish people are filling up their sin so that when wrath does come on God's chosen people, nobody can really question that it's deserved. We see that pattern in other areas of Scripture. So he says wrath has come at last. Now there's debate as to whether or not this is 
happening right then or if it's future wrath. If you look at the, the word tense, it's in the aorist tense. And a lot of times they, they aorist tense, it's a past tense word that simply indicates certainty for the future. So it doesn't mean that it has to be happening right then or it has to have happened in the past. It just means that it's so certain we can talk about it as though it's already happened. An example of this, Romans 8.30, says that those whom God called, he justified, and he glorified. There ain't any of us that have been glorified yet, right? None of us have been glorified. We don't have glorified bodies. Nobody has a glorified body except for Jesus. So even Old Testament people that have died are not glorified the way that that passage is talking about. And yet glorified is in the aorist sense. It is so certain that Jesus is coming back, we will get glorified bodies and be free from sin, that Paul talks about it in Romans 8.30 as though our glorification has already happened. So it's, it's probable that he's saying wrath has come as an indicator that it's so certain that it will come in the future. We're going to go ahead and talk about it in past tense. We know that... Um, Uh, Revelation 19, Jesus is coming with wrath. We also know from 2 Thessalonians, which we will get to eventually. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So he's talking to the Thessalonians again. He's talking about their suffering again. Since indeed God considers it just, to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So there he's clearly indicating that wrath is coming on people that persecuted the Thessalonians, but it's coming when Jesus comes back. So, wrath is coming in the sense that when Jesus comes back, wrath will come on persecutors. Secondly, I think we can say that wrath was coming on those Jewish people very, very soon. If you want to jot down and look at this on your own, Luke 21, 20 through 24. Luke 21, 20 through 24. Don't mistakenly think that that passage is a prophecy about the end times. That's a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Jerusalem was sacked by Rome and many Jewish people endured famine and horrific death when Jerusalem fell in AD 70. It's about 20 years when Paul writes this, 20 years away. So wrath is coming when Jesus comes back. But Paul, who may have been given special inspiration to know that Jesus talked about this, he may be looking at the times and says, wrath is about to come on these people as well, like really soon. Really soon. And then the third option, as far as what he means, is that it could be just simply wrath after death. John 3.36 says that when we do not believe, that wrath remains on us. So what does exactly Paul mean when he says that wrath has come? We're not exactly sure. But there's three viable options, and all three are true. That wrath was coming on them when Jerusalem fell. Wrath would come on them when they died and faced God in judgment. And wrath would also come when Jesus returns and everyone's issued into their eternal state. Number two in your notes, and we'll go quickly now. Resistance is consistent with obedience. Suffering is consistent. And resistance is consistent. Suffering has the idea that we receive suffering being stationary, that we're just here doing our thing and we get suffering. But when we obey the word, we will also experience resistance. When we try to move forward, when we try to do things, we will experience resistance and be hindered because of our obedience. We'll be opposed by self-righteousness. We will be opposed by self-righteousness. The spread of salvation was being hindered. It says that Paul, in his efforts to share the gospel with Gentiles... He says that he was being opposed. They were hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So in his efforts to share the gospel, he was being hindered. He wasn't being able to share the gospel like he wanted to. These Jewish and Gentile people, in their opposition to the gospel, they were hindering him 
from spreading the gospel. He has to retreat constantly. He's not done with his ministry in Thessalonica. He wasn't done with his ministry in Judea and these other places. But he was forced out. He was forced out because these people were hindering him from being able to share the gospel like he wanted to. We will also be opposed by satanic forces. We will be opposed by satanic forces. Not only is the spread of salvation hindered, the furtherance of sanctification is hindered as well. As we move down into verse 17, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more angrily and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. This word hindered has to to do with the idea of breaking up a road so that one can't continue to go. It's a military term where they they would tear up roads so that the armies couldn't advance. It hindered them from advancing. And so Paul envisions Satan as being one who is tearing up opportunities for Paul to, to pursue sanctification with people. Paul can't be with the Thessalonians like he wants to. He can't continue to make disciples with them like he wants to. He's being hindered, and he attributes the hindrance to Satan. Now, we know from Scripture that Satan is given opportunity to oppose the gospel. He deceives unbelievers. He attacks churches. And so Paul clearly says Satan is doing something here. But... And here's where it's interesting. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6 and 7, it says, And they went, this is Paul, this is right before he comes to Thessalonica. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Romans 1.13, Paul talks about how he wants to go to the Romans, but he's been hindered. And he doesn't attribute it to Satan. So why is he attributing it to Satan here and he attributes it to the Holy, or Luke attributes it to the Holy Spirit in Acts when he says the Holy Spirit would not let them go to these places? I think you could say that both are correct, that God directs us and Satan hinders us because Satan cannot do anything without God's permission, right? We know that. We've we've seen that in Job. Satan can't do one thing that God doesn't permit. We also know from 2 Corinthians 12, 7. If you want to jot that one down real quick, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. This is the passage where Paul's given the thorn in the flesh. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh of, the, of a messenger of Satan to harass me, To keep me from becoming conceited. So we see from that account that God oftentimes uses evil for his purposes. So God allows Satan to hinder the advancement of the gospel for his purposes. God's still in control. God's still doing what he wants to do. So as our church continues to be faithful to the word and we experience opposition, we can say that it's correct that, yes, Satan's hindering us. That God's directing us. That both are true at the same time. That God uses Satan to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But it may be that the situation was so evil that whatever was hindering Paul from doing what he wanted to do was so evil, it was very clear. This is all Satan's idea. Like This is Satan and what he wants to accomplish. This isn't just doors closing. This is evil opposition. And evil opposition comes from Satan. The encouragement is that we need each other to endure suffering. We are not alone. Others are persevering. We can too. We need each other to endure suffering. Once again, Paul gives us a glimpse of the love that he has for this church. He says, We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire... To see you face to face. If you want to be clued in on how serious he was, that word desire in the Greek is the same word for lust and covetousness. Here it's used in a positive sense, but it's an intense passion. Paul says, I want to be with you guys. I want to be with you and I want to disciple you. And I can't get there because Satan 
is hindering me. When he says he's torn away from them, it literally means that he was orphaned from them. Remember, he's already talked about how he becomes like a child when he interacted with them. He was like a mom in nurturing them. He was like a dad in teaching them. And he now says, the fact that we've been separated, it's like a parent being ripped away from their child. He continues the analogy. He says, in the same way a mom who suddenly has their baby taken from them would do everything that they could to be reunited. He says, that's how I feel about you guys. I feel like I have been orphaned from you against my will. And I want to do everything I can to get back to you guys. It's intense language that he uses. He says, I've not forgotten about you. You're still, you're still there in my heart. I'm still praying for you constantly. But my hope is to be with you once again. That's what we've seen today. Responding obediently to the word brings opposition. If we as a church are faithful to respond to the word, we will endure suffering and opposition. Which leads me to the application questions. Would you rather endure suffering than not accept the word? If it came down to it, suffering or not obeying the word, are you willing to suffer knowing that it's better to obey the word than not? Will you be ready for suffering when it comes? Will you be ready for suffering when it comes? Jot down Luke 6, 46 through 49. That's the passage of the, the wise man and the foolish man. One builds his house on the sand. One builds his house on the rock. The difference in, in where you're building is based on how you respond to the word. Jesus says the man who builds his house on the rock is the man who hears what I say and does what I say. Sometimes we think house on the rock is, is, is someone who believes in God and the atheist is the one who builds his house on the sand. That's not the case. Jesus says the person who builds his house on the sand is the person who hears the word and doesn't do anything with it. We can prepare ourselves for suffering by digging in a deep foundation in God's word. So that we are grounded in God's sovereignty. We are grounded in his goodness towards us as his children. We are grounded in the fact that suffering is temporary. That glory is coming. Paul says in Philippians 4 that he was content in all his circumstances. Whether he was wanting or had plenty. And then the two questions that we ask today. Why are we not suffering right now? Why are we not suffering right now? The suffering that we've looked at today deals with rejection over the gospel. Rejection over the gospel. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, have I veiled my Christianity or am I trying to advance the gospel? Because I think that's why we lack suffering. I think there's enough evidence in Scripture that when you do try to advance the gospel, you'll find some suffering. But I think the lack of suffering in our life is largely due to the fact that we are not as faithful as we should be in trying to advance the gospel. I mean, the big story in, in the media has been Tim Tebow, who plays football for the Denver Broncos. He is persecuted and hated. Now, he's not being beaten, and so it, it's hard to even use those words when we know that others around the world are enduring much more. But the moment that he began to open his mouth and proclaim Christ in his occupation, he was hated and persecuted. There are other athletes who claim to be Christians, and you, you are usually surprised like me when you find out they are. There's been times when I walk into a bookstore and I'll see a magazine or a book authored by somebody who claims to be a Christian, and you're like, really? Like, I, I had no idea. Tim Tebow is a guy who's advancing the gospel and he's enduring persecution for it. And we have to ask ourselves, is the reason I'm not suffering, is it because I'm not advancing the gospel? Am I so careful that I don't want to offend people, that I don't want to make people angry and upset? I don't want to be confrontational. And so because of all those things, I'm not real serious about advancing the gospel. Because the pattern here is that when you do advance the gospel, you suffer. On that last question we asked today, how would your life look different if you weren't saved? 
How would your life look different if you weren't saved? Would there be things that you stopped doing? You know, I walked around and listened to you guys, and there were things that, that you would start doing or start doing more of. But how much of our life would stop because we're not a Christian? Let's not be known for the things that we don't do. Let's not be known as Christians as people who, who, who don't do drugs, who don't uh, get drunk, who, who don't do these things. We should be known for the things that we are doing. So that if we weren't a Christian, there would be a whole lot of things in our schedule that would stop. Paul, would say, Paul said, I'm laboring. I am laboring, working hard to advance the gospel. Can the same be said of us? Are we laboring hard to advance the gospel? If we do, we will endure persecution. My desire is for us as a church to do this together. That's why we're calling you guys to membership. Because we want to know who's in, who's with us, who we can count to suffer with us. That's why it's so important that you guys get these membership profiles turned in. Because we want to get moving with it. We want to get moving advancing the gospel. We've been planning this church plan for a year and a half now. For us, it's time to get moving. And we want to know who wants to move with us. Who wants to advance the gospel. And as persecution comes, as opposition comes, who's going to be there with us to stand with us and and, and receive it joyfully? This is what we want to do as a church. We want to be known for advancing the gospel. We want to be faithful to advance the gospel. And we want to expect suffering to come, persecution to come. Because we want to be serious about this. We'll close now in prayer. God, I thank you that you have given us a clear example in Scripture of what it looks like to respond to the Word. God, you've let us know that if we'll get serious about doing what your Word says, you're going to work through us, you're going to expand your kingdom, but in the process you will bring suffering and persecution. God, we don't want to be a church that looks for suffering and persecution. We don't want to be the type of church that tries to create persecution and suffering. But God, we do want to be a church that evaluates why we're not suffering and being persecuted the way that it seems like we should be. And God, if that's because we're not advancing the gospel like we need to be, I pray that we would be convicted. God, that we would be tired of just listening about making disciples and we would get serious about making disciples. God, that we would get serious about evaluating how we spend our time here on this earth that is not our home. God, that we would see ourselves as missionaries that have been planted here to spread the gospel. God, that we would evaluate our weekly schedule like we would if we were on a mission field. God, that we would realize this is not our home. God, give us a passion and desire to advance the gospel. Give us a desire to be obedient to your word. And God, as suffering and opposition comes as you've promised, Father, I pray that we would be able to say, it is well with my soul. Blessed be your name. That we'd be able to receive it joyfully the way Christians have been doing since the beginning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.